Kitty. It was awesome. Yo, you guys are like super laid back today, eh? That was amazing. The worship was amazing. JR, thank you. And the team. I'm trying to remember how I do this now. I'm so confused. You know, I'm, I've got OCD, so now when I don't have it the same way, I always have it. Can, can like, you guys just at least like, just, I don't know, give the Lord a hand or something <laughs> while I'm doing this? Because you sound, you sound so, like, gosh, like everyone's a gimme. Um, so that, that's a board group I can highly recommend. I go there sometimes, as you know, uh, because I go there just to check out who's coming so I can judge you all. I'm just joking. I love, you know, just what Jeremy and Lily are doing through that group. It's so needed. And it's not just for those that are st- suffering with addiction. It's really if you ha- are having a struggle at the moment with anything in your life, it's holding you back from living in the fullness of who you are in Christ. And so please, if you, if you need it, there is no judgment. I promise you now, I think all of us should probably do it. But I want to encourage you to go and register. At least go and check it out if you feel like you need to break free of something. Um, I want to welcome all the guests that are, com- that are joining us here today. If you're new, thank you for coming. Uh, everyone that's joining us online as well. I was asked this morning to put out a plea for volunteers from Melissa over there in the children's venue. You know Melissa Taylor, she's awesome. And we desperately need children's volunteers for our fourth Sunday. So right now, as it stands, we're going to have kids with us every fourth Sunday, just so you know, because we don't have volunteers. Um, that was a joke, guys. You don't have to look so scared. Everyone's like, okay, maybe I should go volunteer now. But jokes aside, we do need people on the fourth Sunday. And so if you do have a capacity to serve that side, if you're not serving already, and you can help with hosting, you don't have to be with the kids all the time. You can be someone that's greeting people. You can check kids in. You can be a facilitator. You can help with the security side of things. So there's lots of different things to do. But please consider going to register. And if you want to, go chat to Melissa after the meeting. She is over that side. This morning is our third Sunday, and so before we get started, we have the privilege of welcoming in some new families to Hope Rock Church. So can I ask Dan and Autumn, Lori, Tori, Dane, Dominic, Jossie, Jenna to please come up? Did I get them all right? Who's, who did I miss? Jovi. Jovi. I'm a gosh. Okay, Jovi too. Is that it? Is that the only one I missed? I think so. Okay, good. Uh, can I ask Trey, Alyssa, and Vivian to come up, please? The Papa's family. Can I ask Miss Jenna to come up as well? She just came up without me even calling you. Is there a Jenna over there? Gemma. There's another. Gemma. Sorry, I, I just messed everything up. So this is Jenna Burns, everyone. She has recently joined our church. She's also on our band, and she's also a recent widow. So if you want to just give her love and support her, or maybe you're going through something similar to what she's been through as a widow, uh, she's a great person to talk to. Anyway, so you might be thinking, why do we welcome people into our church? Why do we do this on a Sunday morning? And it's very awkward now that they're all standing around me. But I want to tell you that in the book of Acts, right after Pentecost, it says this in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And what that's speaking about covers a lot more than just joining a church or attending a church, should I say. The context behind breaking bread, for example, is about breaking bread in people's homes as we celebrate communion. It's about being in other people's places. Can you imagine? It means not taking people to a restaurant every time you hang out with them. It means, say, come to my house. Let me cook you a meal. Fellowship is the Greek word koinonia, and it means to socialize, friends. Do you know that the Bible speaks about socializing? Interestingly, that's why we believe in the value of life groups, because it's in Scripture. And so when people join our church, they're not ticking a religious box, because that's what we need them to do so they can start paying us money. When people jo- Although you should be doing that. I'm just joking. <laughs> When people join our church, we are inviting them to become part of the family, to join this community. And so that's what we want to do today. We want to, as a church, say to these families 
that we are here to honor, to protect them, to invest in them, to walk alongside them during their lifetime in the church to help breathe, breathe life into them, to bring the giftings out of them so they can reach the fullness of what God has for them. And then what we ask is for them to do the same for us, to get to know us, to be a part of this community and to become a part of your family too. And so if you don't know any one of these people, I would encourage you after this meeting to get to know them. Uh, and if you do know them, get to know them more. And if you've never had them over to your house for dinner, please invite them all over to your house for dinner. You'll notice this family is super easy to cater for. Okay, so just invite them over. But anyway, can I ask the deacons to come up? We want to lay hands on them. Anybody that's friends or family with them that loves them, wants to lay hands on them too, please come up. We're going to set them into place here at Hope Rock Church. And if you've never done DNA, it happens every third Saturday of the month. So come and do it too, and you can, become, you can go through this amazing experience with all of us. Hey? Amen. Just so you know, Charlie's in Rotan preaching. That's why he's not here. Mark is busy preaching on a cruise ship in Italy. Uh, at least that's what he told me. But let's pray. Father, thank you for the amazing families, Lord, that you bring to our church, that you continuously add to our body. We know, and I say this all the time, that we are stronger because of them, their gifting, their capacity. And we just thank you, Lord, that you will release them into whatever you've called them to do in Hope Rock Church and that they would feel loved, connected, and part of this local family. We pray a blessing over them, over the young ones in particular, that they'll find this place, a beautiful home to grow up in. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. Thank you, guys. That was cool, right? Let's give the Lord another hand. Yes. Seems like uh, vacation has started early this year. Uh, anyway, we're back in Revelation this morning. For those of you that have been part of Hope Rock Church for some time, uh, since January last year, pretty much, and you've been through all of these Revelation series, I know that today is an extremely sad day for you because today brings Revelation to a close. Oh, there we go. That's what I wanted. The oh, not the yeah. Tim, Hallelujah. you don't have to come back again. Okay, thank you very much. But today does bring Revelation to a close. We're going to cover the final four glimpses that we find in the last section of Revelation, which is the seven glimpses of God. But before we get to them, let me just remind us what this section of Revelation is about. First of all, this section gives us a panoramic view of God's final fulfillment of His plan for the redemption of humanity, which is us, His people, His church, and ultimately His plan for the restoration of a new heaven and a new earth. Secondly, the central theme of these glimpses is the new city, Jerusalem. It is a beautiful place. It is the city of God, the place where God Himself dwells. In fact, in Revelation chapter 21 from verses 1 to 8, we heard about the New Jerusalem for the first time in detail. And what the seven glimpses do is unpack what we heard in the seven visions in a lot more detail. But it does tell us two things. One, it tells us that yes, the city is the heavenly city that we will one day live in, the new glorious Eden that we'll be a part of. But also, because this city is also the bride, this city is also a representation of us as the church, not just in glory, but of us as the church here on this earth. So let's talk about us as the city. Well, the first thing we know about the city is it's a city that radiates whose glory? God's glory. It radiates the very radiance of Jesus Christ. In other words, churches should be about Jesus Christ. Churches should radiate Jesus Christ. Churches should talk about Jesus Christ. And I want to say this this morning from the pulpit. If a church is not known for Jesus Christ, I don't think it's part of the church. That's just what I see in Scripture. I know that might sound harsh, but that's what it is. The city, separate, the city itself is separate from its surroundings. And what that tells us is that we as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ are called to be different to the world, right? 
We're in the world, but we're not of the world. Not better than the world, not superior to the world, not religiously uh, beating everybody with our religious sticks, but we are separate, distinct, and we have a flavor to us. It's called the essence of God. People should know that we are believers because of what we believe. The city, even though it is distinct, is not exclusive. The invitation to enter the city is open to everyone. The requirement to become a citizen in the city is simply this, believing in what the Lord Jesus Christ did for you at the cross. That is your passport into the city. We know that this city will one day be complete. In other words, it's that beautiful cube city, as wide as it is high, as it is deep, 1,500 miles. And it tells us that at some point in time, God will bring every single believer into his church. There won't be anyone left out. Nobody's going to be left behind. Forget about that TV show you watched. Everybody will make it into heaven. And then lastly, everyone that believes, yes. Then lastly, while everyone uh, is judging me, this city, (laughs) while it's not perfect yet. In other words, the bride of Christ unfortunately doesn't look as glorious as she will one day look. We still have some blemishes that we need to sort out. Unfortunately, sometimes we're not a great example to the world. The promise that we find in this book is that one day we will be perfect. We'll be adorned with all those beautiful jewels. Remember the ones I showed you two weeks ago, the ones that shine with all of these different colors. That's what we have to look forward to. But that brings us to the final four glimpses. So turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 22. We're going to cover the entire chapter this morning. I've got seven points for you. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord Jesus, this book is about you. Everything we do in this church is about you. I pray that you would be high and lifted up this morning through the words that I speak. If anything I say, Lord, is not from you, I pray that you would remove it from my thought process and just protect us all. I also pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take whatever words are sent out and you would season them with your salt and that they would take root in us and produce great fruit. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the fourth glimpse of glory is what we're going to cover first. And it covers the concept from Revelation chapter 21, this concept of renewal. And it says this in in verse 1 of chapter 22. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and of the Lamb. First point for us this morning is this. The river of God is a river that will flow both in eternity, but it is a river that flows right now through each and every one of our lives. If we think about this picture, there is a joint throne that we are presented with. God the Father and Jesus Christ are seated on the same throne, and from them comes this life force, this river, right? In fact, this is as an aside, but I think it's a great picture of what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. You have God the Father, God the Son, and the living waters that come from Him representing the Holy Spirit. But what this picture is sort of helping us understand is that there is going to come a time where God is going to renew what we knew as Eden. In other words, Eden was the place where there was the original river that flowed. That river brought life to the trees in the garden, and it also brought life to the surrounding lands. God, in this picture, is going to renew that picture completely and totally. In fact, the water is crystal clear because everything that comes from God and everything that will exist in the new heaven and the new earth will be absolutely pure and perfect, right? And that's great. I mean, I can't wait to dive into that particular river, but here's the point. What does it mean to us today? What does this river represent to us now? Well, what we do know is that the concept of the river of life is not something that's new, right? It's something that's spoken about throughout Scripture. For example, the prophet Joel in Joel 3 verse 18 describes this river as the source of sweet wine. He says it flows from the very house of God, the temple of God. 
In Ezekiel 47, Ezekiel tells us about this river, but he expands the picture of the river a little bit. And he says, this river is so deep and so wide that you cannot cross it. And the invitation for us as God's people is, will we be the people that dip our toes in the river and say, we've had enough of God? Or will we be the people that dive into the river and say, we want as much of God as we can possibly get? You see, here's the deal. How much of God you get in your life is 100% dependent on how far you are willing to press into the river, friends. If you want more of God, then you've got to go deeper in God. You've got to be ready for the unexpected and the suddenness that God brings, and you've got to trust Him for more. In Zechariah 14 verse 8, it tells us that this river is a river that doesn't depend on rainfall. It's not dependent on seasons, whether it's summer or winter. This river will flow every day and its river and its height of the river will remain constant and stable because God is the one that's generating its force. And so the answer to the question as to what this river represents to us today is I believe that this river represents the kingdom of God. Jesus himself in Matthew 4 verse 17 said to the people as he was beginning his earthly ministry, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Remember in John chapter 7, Jesus says, anyone who is thirsty can come to me and drink. And then what does he say? Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, friends. The the living water is not exclusive to heaven. It's flowing right now. In fact, when Jesus said those words in Matthew chapter 4, he was looking to the day that he knew would come when he went to the cross, when he died for our sins, when he would be resurrected for our sins, when he would have shown Satan and the enemy that they were defeated, when he would ultimately be ascended into heaven and fulfill what we saw in Daniel chapter 9, where the Son of Man was presented to the ancient of days and what he was saying is that the river of God is flowing has been flowing and will continue to flow through the church and through the people that declare the gospel message the river of God friends is the kingdom of God it is inside of us we have control of being a part of it and we determine where it flows why because where you go the kingdom is Verse 2 of Revelation 22 continues. It says, Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The second point for us this morning is that the gospel message is the only hope that this world ever has. Now you might be thinking, how does that even relate to what we just read? Let me explain. When God first created Eden, it was perfect, right? It was humanity at its greatest. Adam and Eve before the fall were God's pinnacle of his creation. They were superhuman. Everything was perfect. There was no sin. There was no blemish. There was no tarnish. There was no disease. The animals loved each other. The plants grew super big. No animal killed each other. Everything was just amazing. I don't know what it looks like, but I can't wait to see it one day. But then, of course, Adam and Eve sinned. And from that moment... Sin itself entered the world. And what happened? It tainted every single thing it touched. Essentially, we live in a cursed world. We live in a world now that's full of disease, full of sickness, full of pain, full of suffering, full of anguish. Often people will say, well, how can a loving God do such terrible things? God didn't do anything. This is a product of our sin. We live in a world that is tainted with sin. Yet, in this picture, what it's telling us is there is an answer to this curse that has come in and the answer to the curse is the leaves that will heal the nations there is healing there is an ability to change the stream in the course of events and so the question is is this only speaking about what we will experience one day in eternity or is there something more to this text 
Well, I don't believe, to be honest, my personal interpretation, that this has anything to do with eternity. Because again, when we are in heaven, we are with God. Jesus is on the throne. God is on the throne. Satan has been destroyed. The beasts of the earth have been destroyed. The beasts of the sea has been destroyed. Sin has been dealt with. Death has been dealt with. Hades has been cast away. Why would the nations need to be healed in heaven? The nations don't need healing in heaven. They need healing right now. And so who are the vessels that God brings his healing work through? Yes, it's God, the Holy Spirit, but we are the church. That tells me something important. Psalm chapter 1, which is actually the inspiration behind this logo that we have for our church, says this. Blessed is the man who walks. It's answer. Just calm down. Okay. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits at the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. You see, the point I'm making, friends, is because the kingdom of God flows in us, we need to allow the kingdom of God to flow through us. It is the answer to the healing of the nations. What exactly is the answer? It is the gospel message. And what that tells me is that if we want to see this world become a better place and we want to see the kingdom influence the world, we've got to stop relying on social justice initiatives to fix the world. We've got to stop relying on politicians to fix the world. We've got to stop relying on governments, even Christian governments, to fix the world. Instead, we have to rely on the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ himself, and the message of the gospel because that, friends, is the only thing that can fix a sin-tainted and sin-infected world. The answer is in nothing else, friends. And as believers, we need to put our faith back where it belongs. And we need to start preaching the gospel more than we are worried about all of this other stuff that happens in the world. Verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. What we notice is it's not just the nations that begin to get healed through the river of God that flows through us, but we as believers are participants or beneficiaries of healing too. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. And so in this new garden city, for sure, one day in eternity, there will be no more sin. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more anguish. We'll all be happy. It will be amazing. We will be with God. In fact, no external light will be required because God himself will illuminate everything. Now, whether that means there actually won't be stars in heaven or sun, I'm not sure. But the picture language is we don't need anything because God is enough. And while that's super awesome and I can't wait to get there again, the question is, what do we do with this today? Well, what I do know is that God, according to my Bible, is dwelling with his people today, right? And so that tells me that something of these blessings, something of these promises, we can receive this side of eternity too. We don't have to wait for them. We can start to live in them today. You know, we place so much emphasis on things like generational curses. And we start to think to ourselves, my gosh, maybe 50 years ago, someone in my family did this or did that or was an addict or maybe they were a Freemason or maybe they were this or maybe they were that. And, you know, now I'm messed up because now the generational curses are in me. And because they did that, then I've got to be with this. And I will sit with this problem and we try and go to the Lord and say, Lord, you need to deliver me from this. You know, when I read my Bible and it tells me this, it tells me that when I got saved, I was taken not from a, being a bad person to a good person, but from somebody who was dead, raised to new life. 
The Bible tells me that I'm a new creation in Christ. And so if you're a new creation, the old is gone and the new has come. You don't need to fight against generational curses. You need to live in the identity of who you are in Christ. You are a new creation. Just cut those things off your life. Don't give them the power that they have. It tells us that the curse of the law, friends, this performance culture that we live in where we've got to do more for God and we've got to be excellent for God and we've got to do this and we've got to do that and if we don't do this then God won't love us has been broken. Galatians 3 verse 13 tells me that the curse of the law has been broken. Why? Because Jesus broke it on the cross. In other words, we don't have to do anything to earn God's love because it's not about what we do this side of eternity that matters. It's about what Jesus did on the cross. There's freedom in Christ. We can live in this freedom today. It tells me that right now, not at some distant moment in the future, we can know what it feels like to have intimacy with God. Do you know that the distance between you and God is determined by how much you want to press in? If you want more intimacy with God, then you've got to get on your knees. And maybe it's not even on your knees. Maybe you just sit down and say, Lord, show me more of who you are. Reveal to me more of your glory, Lord. Believe me, if we ask God for more of him, he will give us more of him. Instead of going to him with a laundry list of all of our prayer requests and the 15,000 things that we do every single day and just say, Lord, here I am. I want more of you. You are enough. Believe me, friends, he'll pour himself out in your life. That brings us to the fifth glimpse. It's about God's faithfulness. Verse 6 of Revelation 22 says, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Third point is God will be faithful in eternity, but God is already faithful right now. The angel's confirming what we heard in Revelation chapter 21 in the second half of verse 5. And he's telling us that what God has said can be trusted. It's a reminder to us this morning that God is in complete control of the timeline. That his plans for the redemption of us and humanity are going to come to pass. It's a reminder, friends, to every single church that has existed in this world. Past, the seven churches that were initially the audience of this letter churches that lived throughout the Middle Ages, churches that are living today, churches that are alive today. And it's a reminder to every single believer on this earth that no matter how much persecution you faced, no matter how much opposition has come against you because of the sake of the gospel, no matter how many times you've been rejected by the people that you love and the people that you thought cared about you, but now that you know Jesus, they don't want to know you. It's a reminder to all of us that God has got this and more importantly, that God has got us. Every single church is reminded in this text that what you are going through is seen by God and He is faithful to respond. Can you imagine being the first century church, receiving this revelation from John, being one of those seven churches, and God telling you that, yes, you're going through difficult times, but guess what? One day I'm coming back, and it's sooner than you think. That would have been a huge encouragement. It's meant to encourage us today. Jesus goes on to say in verse 7 in the first half, He says, And behold, look, I am coming soon now i know a lot of you may be thinking man jesus got a weird way of telling the time this letter was written that was quite funny guys you can laugh it's okay we're in church ha 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 thank you love this letter was written two thousand years ago just about and so the question for us is is jesus really coming soon i want to answer that by saying to you it completely depends on how you define jesus coming back you see, if you define Jesus in this case as in coming back in glory, in bodily form with all the saints and the angels, 
Well, then the truth of the matter is I have no idea when Jesus is coming back. And please, if I ever tell you I know when he's coming back, don't come back to this church. I don't know when he's coming back. I don't know if it's today. I don't know if it's tomorrow. I don't know if it's 100 years from now or 1,000 years from now. We know that Peter says in, in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, that with the Lord a day is like a 1,000 years and a 1,000 years is like a day. And so he could be coming back anytime. In fact, Jesus himself doesn't know when he's coming back. Only the Father knows, and it's been pre-planned, pre-appointed, and pre-ordained before the foundation of the world. And so the short answer is, I don't know when coming soon means. However, if we flip the definition around a little bit and we start to define Jesus coming back as the moment where we were invited into the kingdom, when we received our salvation, when he answered our prayers, when we felt the sweet touch of his embrace, when we operated under the power of his anointing, or in my case, in the countless times that I should have died, but I did not die, then I want to say to you that I believe in some sense Jesus has already come in my life. And I can guarantee he's probably come in your life too. Verse 7 of Revelation says this, And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. You see, all the hardships, the pain, the stuff that you suffered, and you might even be thinking right now, how can you say Jesus is here? How can you say he's with me? You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I'm dealing with, even as a believer. And the truth is, I don't know what you're going through, and I don't know what you've had to deal with as a believer. But what I can tell you now is when you look in the rearview mirror of your life, what you'll realize is that your life is dotted with the fingerprints of Jesus. He's been with you all along. And everything that you have been through, will go through, and are currently going through, my Bible says it will be worked out for your good. And so Jesus is with us. And there's a blessing that's attached to it. And that's the fourth point. We are blessed when we guard God's promises. You see that alliteration, Tim? Alliteration. What's interesting is that this book starts with a blessing. Revelation chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. Well, now we're at the end of the book, right? And so the blessing that was given to us at the beginning of the book is being reminded to us. However, this time, the emphasis is not on hearing anymore because we've heard everything that Jesus has said. The emphasis is on keeping the words that have been given to us. The word used in the Greek for the word keep is the word tereo, and it means to guard or to protect. In other words, are you guarding and are you protecting the promises that you've received in the book of Revelation or are you allowing the enemy to come in and steal them from you and tell you who he thinks you are? You see, if we want to access the blessing, we need to be a people that start to live in the promises that we've read throughout the entire book of Revelation. What do I mean by that? Will we be the kind of people today who protect the truth? The truth that says that in the face of a messed up world, in the face of a messed up government, in the face of a messed up system, in the face of a messed up everything, we can live courageously knowing that we serve a mighty God who is on the throne? Or will we allow Satan to come in and tell us, no, that's not how you're going to live. You need to cower in fear and hide under the bed. Which one is it? Will we be the kind of people today who protect the truth that because Jesus is on the throne, we can have absolute peace? Or will we be the kind of people who find their peace in what you have or in which government is in power? Those are the truths that Revelation has laid out for us. It's saying trust in one thing and his name is Jesus Christ. Everything else will fail. Everything else will let you down. But there is one who is trustworthy and true and he is coming back, friends. 
The point I'm making is that all of these promises for us as believers are promises that we will overcome. Promises that we are more than conquerors. Promises that this world is not all there is. And the promise that Jesus will one day come and take us home. And it's those truths, those realities that we guard, that we protect. And it's those truths that we live in. And when we do that, we'll experience the kind of blessing that Revelation promises. And you know what the blessing is? It's living a life of victory, friends. That's what the book of Revelation is about. It's not about the end times. It's not about scaring you. It's not about putting fear into you. It's about saying, you, church, of all people, are victorious. Why? Because the king we serve is on the throne. And so no matter what goes on around us, we can stand strong in our king. Verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of an angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. The angels like us, friends. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. There's something interesting about that, but we don't have time to get into it. But let's talk about worship. First point for us this morning is we need to be a people who are careful what we worship. You know, this verse is such a powerful picture of the human condition. One that even John, the mighty apostle, Jesus' friend, right, his close buddy, the guy who walked with Jesus, who loved Jesus, who lay on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. This is John, man. This is not just anybody. This is John. Even John, in the face of all the glorious things that he's been shown by the angel in the majesty of heaven, he makes the fatal mistake of falling on his face and worshiping the angel. Do you know that the Greek word for angel is angelos? Do you know what it means? It means messenger. And so before we start throwing stones at John and saying, how could he do that? We have to understand that we live in a church culture today where we love to worship the messengers. We love to raise up pastors and church leaders and worship leaders and celebrity Christians and we put them up on these huge pedestals. And the problem with that is when they fail, because they generally will, because we're human beings and all of us are capable of sinning, then our faith is crumbling. It starts to break down. How many churches have been wiped out because we've been worshiping the messenger instead of the king? That's right. This church, we have to make Jesus the very center because he's the only one that will never let you down. We are not meant to worship the messengers. And what's worse is that our ability to worship the wrong things in our lives doesn't end with messengers. It even translates into good things. For example, we love to worship our spouses. We treat them as if they're God. In fact, that we put them in God's position. And then you know what? We get frustrated with our spouses when they don't meet our expectations. But here's the deal. You have unmet expectations because you have unrealistic expectations. Your spouse is not God. They cannot fill the void in your heart that only God can fill. You need to worship God in your marriage, in your life, before anything else. But what about the fact that we worship our jobs? Why? Because our jobs give us our identity. This is who I am. I'm the CEO. I'm a captain of industry. I'm a hotel worker. I'm a restauranteur, whatever it is. And then we lose our jobs. And then we wonder why we don't know who we are anymore. You are a child, a son and a daughter of the king. That's your identity. We don't worship our identity on this earth. We worship our identity in Christ. And now I'm going to say something that's going to frustrate everyone. We worship our kids, and I love you kids. All the kids here, we love you guys. You guys are awesome. But man, we sacrifice so much at the altar of our children, friends. 
And I want to say this to you. If you are allowing your children's schedules to determine how you live your life, and it's not the Holy Spirit, I want to tell you that you are in danger of being in idolatry. You see, kids will always do what we say. They won't do always what we say, right? They won't do it. We can tell our kids to do stuff. They never do it, right? But what kids will always do is they'll imitate what we've done. So they won't do what we say, but they'll do what we do. I wish it was the other way around. And the challenge with that is if we elevate our children to positions that are above God, the danger we have is that when that generation grows up, they'll find they have no need of God either. And I'm not here to throw stones at anybody. The reason I mentioned these three things is because these are the three things that the Lord has touched on my heart. These are three things that I have the tendency to worship. You see, Alessio? You messed my life up, buddy. <laughs> but for real, these are the things that I'm struggling with. And so I'm sharing with you. Maybe it doesn't apply to your life. And maybe you've got it under control. And that's great. But I'm telling you now, friends, we have the danger in us to worship good things. But here's the deal. Nothing on this earth, no matter how good it is, no matter how glorious it is, is worthy of our worship. Because that thing is a horrible taskmaster. Even your children, they'll run you ragged. Okay, I don't know if you have ever experienced that. There is only one thing that can fill a void in our souls, and that is one person. His name is Jesus, the one who will never leave us, never forsake us, and never abandon us. Let's make Jesus the object of our worship. Amen. Sixth glimpse of glory is about God's judgment. Verse 11. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. The sixth point, and it's something we've dealt with before in the seven trumpets, is this. If we reject Jesus as our Savior, he will become our judge. At some point in our lives, our character will become fixed. There'll reach a moment in your life where you have gone beyond the point of no return. And if you continuously reject Jesus Christ, there will come a day where God will give you over to your own desires. That's what Romans chapter 1 says. Eventually, God gives us over to a depraved mind. He's tried to reach us. He sent people our way. We ignore him. We don't want to answer him. And so God says, it's fine. Be what you need to be. At that point in time, I believe it's too late for you. At the same time, if we choose to receive the Lord Jesus Christ into our lives, we are saved. And that is our identity for the rest of eternity. And so the point I'm making is that Jesus will come back one day to hold people to account. The question is, do we want to receive Jesus as the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world? Or do we want to receive Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah who's going to devour us because of our sin? The choice is ours, friends. It's in our hands. We need to choose Jesus. Verse 13, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Man, this is such a powerful reminder of who Jesus is. This text tells us that Jesus is the Alpha, the first word in the Greek alphabet. Do you know that Jesus is the first person that has anything to do with your salvation? It's called regeneration, friends. He's the one that brings your salvation into bear. He's the one that gave you a new heart, that removed the heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. It's from that moment that we can become justified by faith alone in Christ alone through what he did on the cross alone. And then we become sanctified, beholding the glory of God. We are transformed from one degree of glory to the next, right? But you know, it doesn't end there because this text tells me that he's the Alpha and the Omega, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. In other words, Jesus is the one who will bring our salvation to final glorification, friends. We can trust him that he will finish what he started in us and will become the people he's always called us to be. 
He's everything in between, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the start and the finish. That's the king that I serve. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to eat the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Again, I think this verse really does bring to light the fact that we're reading about the church and not about the future kingdom because, again, there's not going to be dogs and sexually immoral people in the kingdom. But what this picture tells us is that there's two types of people in this world. There are those who are in the city and there are those who are outside the city. In other words, those who are in the city are saved. Those outside the city are lost. Those inside the city are believers in Jesus. Those outside the city are followers of Satan. Those inside of the city are headed to heaven. Those outside of the city are headed to hell. There's only two kingdoms in operation in this world. Heaven, hell, Jesus, Satan. Those are the only two things we have. And I know people might not necessarily be Satanists, but the fact that they're not following Jesus means they're following the king of this world. And what constitutes the, dis- the, the difference or the, the, the variation between these two people is not religion. It's not good works. It's not good deeds. It's not good thoughts. What separates the two people? The clothing that we wear. You know, one of the parables Jesus speaks about in Matthew chapter 21, he's, it's the parable of the wedding feast. You remember the wedding feast. Jesus, or the, the king, is going to get married. And so what he does is he invites all of his friends and his families and the close people in his life. He says, come to my wedding feast. I'm getting married, right? What does everyone say? I can't come. I'm too busy. Uh, the Dallas Cowboys are playing this weekend. I'm going to be up in Dallas. I can't come. You know, I've just bought a horse. I bought a dog. My family's sick. This, that, the next thing. No, we can't come. Okay, so he says to his servants, it's fine. Go to the highways and the byways, the hedges and the hills, and invite everybody else to come. And so a bunch of people come. Then it says this in verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. You see, what separates us from people that are not in the kingdom is simply this. The kingdom is reserved for those who have washed their robes in the blood of Jesus Christ. Put another way, the kingdom is reserved for anyone who accepts the free gift of God's grace that was offered at the cross. And while it was free for us, it cost Jesus his life. Final glimpse is about God's grace. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Final point for us this morning is this. Jesus will shine even in the darkest and most hopeless of circumstances. It's beautiful to me that the book starts with Jesus walking amongst the lampstands. He's walking amongst his churches. He did it then. He's doing it today. But now he ends this book by bringing the message to the church to a close. And you notice what he says to the church. He says, I am the bright morning star the star that's being referred to in this text is actually not a star it's a planet it's the planet venus it is the first star that you will see on the horizon after a dark long and gloomy night and what that tells us is no matter what we go through as the church in this earth no matter what you are going through as a believer 
the bright morning star will show up in your life when you least expect it and just when you think you can't carry on. And here's the deal. Jesus is never late. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, what do we do in the meantime? While we're waiting for Jesus to come, to take us out of this wicked world, this broken world, this world that's filled with sin and debauchery, how do we, how do we survive and what do we do? Well, what we see in this text is there are three invitations. The first invitation comes from the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? He invites us into salvation. The second invitation comes from the bride. Those who have been saved because God has drawn them in now get to be a part of the bride, the church. That tells me that the church's job is to equip the saints. The third invitation comes from those that were saved, who have been equipped in the church, who are now told by God, go and tell what you know to all the people in the world who desperately need to hear the gospel. That's what we do while we wait, is we preach the gospel. We to know Christ and to make him known. That's the mission. That's the mandate. That's what Revelation is about. Go and tell the world what you know, the hope that you have, the love that you have, the safety you have, the security you have, the peace that you have. Go and tell the people out there who are right now outside the city because we want them inside the city. Verse 18 warns us that there is a responsibility, however, to bring in this word. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of the book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him plagues described in this book. And I don't need to remind you what those plagues are. They're pretty nasty. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. So here's the deal. Every one of us are called, equipped, and sent by God to bring the gospel message to the lost. But there are two things that we are to never do. One, it is not up to us to add to God's word and start heaping burdens on people and becoming religious about our faith and giving them a million hoops to jump through before they can become a member in our church. Why? Because guess what? That is not how the kingdom works. And when we do that, we are going to face the plagues of God. No religion, friends. The second thing we are not to do is take things away from the word of God. So no matter what your worldview is, it doesn't trump God's truth. And so you don't just decide, oh, well, you know what, actually, you know, I'm not such a big deal on the sexually immoral stuff. I mean, I don't mind it. I think it's okay, so you can do what you want. No, friends, when we remove the fundamental truths of God's words, the absolute truths in this divinely inspired book, and we start to cut things out and say, oh, that was just for then, then we are in danger of losing our names being in the book of life. I don't want to be in those camps. And all we have to do to stay away from those two things is follow Jesus. Stick to the word. Make sure we're preaching the unadulterated word of God. Make sure that we're relying on his strength to bring us into our glory and not heap burdens on people, friends. I'm going to close now. The band can come up. Verse 20 says this. He who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. So sad. This is the end of the book. It says this is the end. I feel like I've lost a friend. You know when you watch series and you binge watch them, you're like, man, I've missed these people in my life. What are we going to do? I think let's start again. Revelation chapter 1. But here's the key. What we notice is that this book doesn't end with the warning. Isn't that interesting? The, war, the, the book doesn't end with a warning. What does the book end with? It ends with a promise. 
And here's the promise. The promise is that Jesus is coming soon. He's coming soon in the situation you find yourself in today. And I felt that this morning as I was praying, that there are people right now who are in some desperate stuff. And you are waiting for the Lord to pull you out. And you've been asking, when, Lord, when, Lord? I want to tell you this morning that I believe and I feel it in my heart prophetically that Jesus is about to show up in your situation. And if it does happen, please come and tell the church. Bring a testimony and let them know that this is what God has done. But he's also coming soon to take us home, friends. I don't know when that will be, but we know he's coming. What this book also ends with is a prayer. The first prayer is this. John agrees with God. He says, yes, Lord, come. Please come, Lord. Come now. But then he leaves us with a blessing. And here's the blessing. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Hope Rock Church, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. It's a reminder to us as Christ followers that we don't live under God's judgment. We don't live under fear of God's retribution. We live in the hope that only God's grace can provide. It's the grace that we'll need when we fall into sin. It's the grace that we need when we have a lapse of judgment and start listening to false teachers. It's the grace that we will need that will sustain us when we're carrying burdens too big for us to carry. In all these things, the promise is that God's grace will be sufficient for us. And what's evident to me as I've read the book of Revelation with you is that God's grace started this book. God's grace has been found in every chapter of this book. It started with the promises to the seven churches that would overcome. It continued to the opening of the seven seals. It became real when the loud trumpets blast were blown, when the dragon was roaring, when Babylon was at her worst, and when the beast arose from the land and the sea. And even though, friends, we've seen every part of the earth, land, sea, rivers, and sky suffer because of the sins of humanity, isn't it amazing that the last word in the book of Revelation is not everlasting distress or everlasting judgments, friends. It is the word of everlasting grace. It's the message, friends, of a conquering church. It's the message of a conquering king. It's the message of a conquering people. It's the gospel. So what is Revelation about? It's about Jesus. And it's about our job to bring his kingdom now. Amen? Let's stand. We're going to sing a song, one of my favorite songs. I asked JR to get it ready for us for the end of the series. I hope you like it as much as I do. The song is about Jesus. This church is about Jesus. And we have everything to thank to Jesus. If you're here today and you have never made a decision to follow Christ, please come up while we're singing the song and come and chat to us. I'd love to pray with you. This is not about religion. It's about God's grace and God's love.